HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today we're going to be talking about milk. Milk in the liquid drinking form. The early history of milk in fluid drinking form in the U.S. and Great Britain has a long and complicated history. In the U.S., it was introduced by European settlers in the 17th century, and it was initially used as a food for children and the sick, but it soon became a popular drink for everyone and a big business. Just look at your supermarket shelves, and it has been touted as being a very healthy drink a superfood, as we'll learn. So much science and technology has gone into making today's milk safer and better. In fact, just this morning, I was reading the carton of milk that I use in my coffee, and it was full of convincing and reassuring information in really bright colors and bold print. I could barely see the picture of the cow. It said, or it says, organic, pasture-raised, whole milk, ethically sourced from small families, farms, pasteurized, grade A, vitamin D, no synthetic hormones, no antibiotics, no GMOs. (laughs) Sounds pretty good. And it is. But there's a lot more to the story as we will learn today from my guest, Anne Mendelson, a food journalist and author whose newest book is called Spoiled, The Myth of Milk as Superfood. Anne is a highly regarded culinary history who has written on a variety of topics for magazines and journals and books. Her previous books include, ready, the history and a cookbook, Milk, the surprising story of milk through the ages, and Stand Facing the Stove, a biography of the authors of Joy of Cooking, Chow Chop Suey, a history of Chinese food in America. She's been the recipient of a Kalman Fellowship and the New York Public Library at the New York Public Library, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and the 2007 Sophie Coe Prize awarded by the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery. Critics have called this latest book a major contribution to food history and to the history of industrializing agriculture. 
Welcome, Anne. I should say welcome once again, Anne, because you've been on, uh, this is what I think about your third time now um, that you've been on the show. And and I am so happy that once again, we're talking about milk. But it seems a little bit like, well, the last book, it was a love affair with milk. Okay, but maybe not in the drinking liquid form, more in the in the cultured form. And now this book spoiled um, sort of debunking it as a superfood. Well, you're not saying milk is bad, but it's a certainly it's a it's sort of a a flip side of what you had written before. Tell me what that's all about. Well, I don't want anybody to think that uh, that I believe milk is a deadly poison um, or that it's um, unfit for human consumption. Um, when I wrote before uh, I did the cookbook, I was already starting to um, have very serious doubts um, about ways in which uh, milk has been promoted. But um, I've been working on this book. Um, I became pretty um, appalled um, at the state of the industry um, at the rationale behind the growth of the industry, um, I came to see it as probably um, at least as much a blight as a blessing, not because milk in itself is bad, uh, but because of what has happened to it in being turned into a mega industry. Right. I mean, what you even, I mean, you mentioned that in your previous book on milk, you did go into that, that, you know, the the problems with the big industry and, you know, what was happening. Well, um, but now. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but this is, um, this book it, is, is very interesting in that um, it, it really talks about how not everyone, as much as we, you know, we're led to believe in with all the marketing, you know, got milk everywhere. <laughs> um, and doctors and, and the even the federal guidelines saying that, you know, you should drink so many glasses of milk. Not everyone can digest milk. Is that correct? And is that part of what led you into, into looking a little closer? Uh, yes, indeed, it's correct. Um, and I was, I was able to... Um, I was able to look at a piece of research done in 1965, that's 58 years ago, uh, that thoroughly disproved the idea that everybody can digest milk. Uh, the problem, well, I don't know where you want to start. Um, it's very complicated. Uh, do you start with lactose or lactose intolerance or how should we structure this? Well, since we're going to talk about uh, populations that are lactose intolerance, you, I think you should describe milk to us and the makeup of milk, and that would mean lactose, right? Well, it's um, it is um, substance so complex um, that scientists have hardly begun to plumb its intricacies. It has three basic kinds of structure. Um, and water is the basic medium. Um, in this water, there are dispersed 
um, micelles that is um, a kind of complex molecule of casein, uh, the principal protein of milk. Um, there is milk fat uh, in globules, um, and there is an awful lot of stuff um, dissolved in the milk, um, including uh, there are enzymes, um, there are um, various kinds of nutrients, um, but most importantly, there is lactose, which is the principal uh, sugar of milk. And um, lactose has the property of being very, very important for newborns to digest, uh, newborn mammals, all kinds of mammals, uh, from mice to giraffes. Um, when they are, when they nurse um, their, their first mouthful of nutrition, uh, when they come into this world, um, they secrete an enzyme uh, that enables them to digest lactose. Um, the enzyme splits lactose into two simpler, more digestible sugars, um, glucose and galactose, um, that the, the infant system can handle. Uh, but after weaning, uh, the young mammal stops secreting lactase, the enzyme that enables them to digest milk. Um, and from then on, its uh, relationship with milk is never the same. Um, and mm. this was true of people, too. This was uniformly true of humans for thousands and thousands of years. And... Probably about 3,000 years ago, although there is an awful lot of debate about the exact time, uh, a genetic um, anomaly, a genetic change took place in certain scattered groups of people, uh, whereby uh, they never stopped secreting lactase after they were weaned, and so they could go on digesting milk as adults, something that is not true of other mammals than their, than their milk. Um, this is an extraordinary change. Hmm, interesting. Uh, and it, because when I think about that, I immediately think about, um, you know, mother's milk versus cow's milk and feeding infants and uh, the whole formula debate and, you know, and the, uh, the rush to get the you know formula on the shelves when there was a a um, a problem with, with some of it, uh, but people they would try to substitute the cow's milk and of course as you just described would not work right uh, right um, let's fast forward to about the eighteen nineties eighteen eighties science had advanced enough the dairy chemists were able to um, demonstrate uh, that breast milk was very different in composition uh, from, uh, from cow's milk. However, this happened to be a period when um, nobody knows for exactly what reason there was a decline in breastfeeding in the U.S., 
fewer and fewer women were nursing their babies, um, and the search was on for a substitute. So that was the beginning of research into devising formulas based on cow's milk, uh, but cow's milk modified to come closer to the composition of human milk. Uh, Human milk has much more lactose, uh, much less protein. Uh, The protein in cow's milk would damage uh, the human baby's kidneys if the milk were not diluted. Um, The sugar content would not be enough unless sugar, like sucrose, um, or actual lactose uh, was added to the milk. Um, So it isn't that cow's milk was instantly being used as is. Um, It was very quickly modified uh, to suit human infants. So that's so it has actually people think, well, give it, you know, give them some regular cow's milk because it's so high in protein, which is highly touted also. But that's exactly what they can't mm-hmm. process. They need they need the lactose. Right. Yes. And, pure and the, um, the infant's kidneys would be really overwhelmed fast by all that protein. Hmm. Well, as. A nation, okay, now as adults, those who um, drink milk, if they, like, a, we're, we're in a real hot spell these past couple of days, and you think, well, better make sure that I put the milk in the refrigerator, because now we have refrigeration, so that it doesn't sour. But soured milk doesn't mean it's bad milk necessarily, but everyone is, is sort of is turned off to soured milk. And yet, what happens to the lactose when milk is soured? Well, um, the milk is invaded by lactic acid bacteria, which are one of the most useful um, adjuncts to human nutrition ever. Uh, Lactic acid bacteria, they zero in on the lactose, um, and they um, secrete an enzyme that splits the two halves of the molecule in, um, into glucose and galactose and produces a lot of lactic acid in the process. So um, the milk becomes more digestible to people who are adults, people who have lost that infant ability to digest lactose. Hmm. So this would include you know, things like yogurts as well and yes. cheeses? Um, yeah, um, think of cultured buttermilk, uh, think mm-hmm. of plain yogurt, um, and other sour dairy products. But at some point in the 18th century, um, some very strange ideas about uh, milk and children uh, came into being. Uh, one of which was that um, infants and young children, their tender systems were too immature to take acid. Um, Acid was a very dangerous thing to introduce into baby systems or young young toddlers. And uh, therefore, the milk that they received 
should be as free from fermentation, free from sourness as possible. Um, there are a lot of things wrong with this, um, one being that when milk goes sour, um, the lactic acid content keeps increasing, um, the pH of the milk goes down, uh, the acidity increases, and this forms, um, this inhibits the ability of many common pathogens uh, to take hold and reproduce in the milk. Uh, therefore, um, in prehistoric times, um, in anything up to uh, modern times, up to the advent of uh, refrigeration, um, sour milk was a lot safer um, than unsoured milk. Hmm. Yeah, that, it's, it's interesting. It's something that is sort of the converse of what most people would uh, would think. You know, they smell the carton of milk and go, ooh, you know, it's soured. Uh, but then uh, I'll talk to you about pasteurization. Well, there was before pasteurization, there was um, uh, Dr. George Cheney. I've heard you talk about him um, yes. a lot. And he was in the, and he, you write about him in the book. He oh. kind of was a champion of drinking milk, right? Oh, he's a fascinating figure. He was a celebrity doctor um, in the 18th century. There's a marvelous biography of him by Anita Barini. Um, he was a character in spades. Um, his weight fluctuated. For much of his life, he was somewhere above 400 pounds. And, um, he was subject to awful bouts of anxiety and depression, uh, which impelled him to make himself into a medical authority um, on the subject of nerves and nervous complaints. During one of his worst depressive episodes, this would have been, been around 1708, um, he was told about a marvelous cure effected through a milk diet. All milk, nothing but milk, nothing but pure, fresh milk. And he found himself um, so much improved by it uh, that milk became the cornerstone of diets that he recommended to a large circle of celebrity patients. Well, this diet didn't last all that long in its own right. But in the course of the 18th century, um, doctors who specialized in treating children uh, took over this idea of Cheney's um, that milk was great for soothing troubled nerves, and that it was uh, a mild, gentle panacea that didn't place any strain on, on um, tender systems. And it was that teaching that really stuck um, the association of fresh, unsoured, fluid milk um, with ideal diets for children uh, that is still with us to this day. And that really um, gave a tremendous impetus to the growing 
industry, the drinking milk industry um, in the U.S. throughout the 19th century. Um, the trouble with that tremendous growth, of course, was that it, it went with tremendous problems in, um, in milk safety. Mm-hmm. What were some of the most uh, common complaints or causes of illness in drink in the drinking milk at that time? Well, in the light of hindsight, um, people uh, were able to investigate the milk with the help of microscopes and identify pathogens like um, diphtheria, uh, cholera. Um, the, the most troublesome was tuberculosis. Um, and the, in the interim, while the cause was unknown, the fact was obvious um, that every summer um, cows were much more seasonal producers then. Um, they would give birth in the spring and ramp up milk production in the late spring and summer. And just at this time, uh, children who drank the milk would start getting sick. Um, and probably whole cocktails of different pathogens were involved. Um, but the reason only became clear when, uh, when physicians uh, had microscopes to work with. Hmm. And they, I mean, I mean, imagine there were a lot of problems with the dairy farms where the milk was coming from and the cleanliness and nobody understood the reason why milk sanitation could be of any importance. Uh, some farmers had more cleanly operations than others, um, and nobody exactly liked the idea of dirty dairy farms. But the reason being harmful was simply not intelligible to people. Um, and the way the milk was transported also, um, it would be, uh, well, the milkers would milk by hand uh, with or without washing their hands, um, milk uh, the um, cow into a bucket, uh, transfer the milk to a milk can, uh, put it um, on the railway station platform to wait for the milk truck. And a lot of this milk came into the cities and went to grocery stores uh, where these same cans, whether they'd been washed at any time in their career or whether they were mm. totally innocent of all washing, um, they would sit there um, with flies buzzing around the top of the can until the milk was finished and the can was sent back to the farm. Well, you see what a recipe this would have been for uh, spreading disease. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and yet, you know, milk remained as popular as ever. But the, the medical what? rationale um, retained its influence. It was the doctors who were as convinced as ever uh, that milk was the most nutritious thing a child could drink. And that was what made 
uh, well, even very poor people who could not afford to think about the cleanliness of the milk. That was what impelled them uh, to line up and buy milk for their little children. Right. And then along came pasteurization. And that that certainly helped helped things along. Um, but then what something that that we talked about in the top of the show, and I guess it's something you recognized right away, was this whole um, ignorance of major swaths of populations that could not digest milk. Think about it. We're going to talk about that. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I'd like to explore that topic a little bit more. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Coming this spring, we're working on something big for opening soon. Opening a restaurant can sometimes take months or even years. So I have this one consulting client that's been three months away from opening for the past year. And I had a calendar reminder show up today, and the reminder was that our goal was to open tomorrow. But this spring, you'll be able to hear it in just a few hours. On March 30th, he had passed away, and then on March 31st, he had come back to life. And then on April 2nd, he had passed away again. And I was like, okay, my regards to the family. I don't even know how to receive this information. So tune in as we follow one of Brooklyn's best and brightest young chefs and restaurateurs on their journey from start to open doors. Alex, you need to put more money in. We're out. We can't pay anybody. He is the worst. Oh my God, that guy. It's the build. Subscribe to Opening Soon from Heritage Radio Network, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm talking to Ann Mendelson about her new book, Spoiled. The Myth of Milk as Superfood. And this was published by Columbia University Press. I forgot to mention at the beginning. And in there was a study done, and I talked about the, um, you know, the, the large, the different swaths of populations, nationalities, um, different genetic makeups of people who are lactose intolerant. And in the 60s, there was a lactose absorption study. Finally, I guess. Uh, what did that? What did that show? Do you, can you speak to that? Yeah, um, this 
This took place in like 1963, 64. Um, a young uh, resident um, at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore. Um, well, he was involved in a community outreach program uh, by Johns Hopkins um, involving both black and white residents of, of Baltimore. And he was puzzled because so many of the black people uh, reported that they hated milk. They really disliked drinking it. Uh, well, how come? Well, uh, I just um, have stomach troubles and cramps and diarrhea. He thought, this is very interesting. This um, is worth looking into. So he and two colleagues did a study that was published in The Lancet, in 1965, it was revolutionary. Um, it demonstrated beyond all doubt that a majority of the white subjects of the study could digest milk with no problem whatever. And a great majority of the black subjects couldn't. Uh, they, they had very distressing digestive cyst, um, symptoms. And doing the actual test, measuring the degree of absorption, uh, showed that the same kind of tremendous gap uh, between the black and white subjects. Well, everybody could see um, there has to be a genetic explanation. Um, although nobody had ever suspected such a thing um, for thousands of years. So um, this study was followed up by many others. Um, lots and lots of researchers um, jumped in um, to do their own studies, which always confirmed exactly what these three had found. Um, and the, um, well, around the turn of the century, um, around the year 2000, uh, somebody was actually able to find the, the precise location um, of a site on one particular chromosome where one nucleotide base, that's uh, adenine and cytosine, um, guanine, thymine, uh, one letter uh, switched places with another, and that was what had enabled white people in some parts of the world, um, not only white people, but principally uh, Northwest Europeans, uh, to start secreting lactase throughout their lives and digesting milk. Hmm. Interesting. And so that's, that is something that had gone undiscovered for so long. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there it was. Uh, While it went undiscovered, um, the, the group, there, there are several scattered groups with this kind of mutation um, on different continents, but the most important one was in Northwestern Europe and the British Isles because uh, these were the people who made great advances in scientific 
um, discoveries uh, starting in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, and they were lured into thinking that they were the world experts on what was good for everybody. Um, if milk was good for English people, it must be good for everybody else. The, the means of questioning that thinking just didn't exist. Huh. Right. It's and I mean, the, to the point where um, we adopted that in in the U.S. Right. I mean, the federal guideline, dietary guidelines were, and nutritionists going around to communities, you know, saying, "Oh, you have to drink lots of milk. You have to have more milk before you buy." You know. Yeah. Where you buy the rest of your food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crazy. Um, then, so raw milk, there seems to be this, well, not seems to be, there is this sort of this raw milk craze that's once again uh, taken off. As there was, I guess, in the uh, early 1900s, there was a, in the 60s, natural food movements, proponents of raw milk. And now we're seeing once again a raw milk craze what um now, of course milk the milk production has become so industrialized that raw milk i would imagine is a lot safer and i too have have consumed it and and you know cheeses made with raw milk what what are the pros and cons about raw milk mm, the pros and cons as stated by the warring parties uh, would be the the pro raws believe that raw milk as it's able to repel infections. It is safe uh, under all but the most extreme conditions. Um, there is absolutely no reason why people shouldn't be drinking as much raw milk as they want. Um, there are arguments that children who um, drink raw milk have fewer allergies and ear infections, um, some other common conditions uh, than other kids. Um, I think that those claims are certainly worth uh, looking into because they seem to be so consistent. Um, the the anti-raw or the pro-pasteurization argument um, is that you are playing Russian roulette with your health um, if you drink raw milk, um, no matter uh, what. The, you can never 100% eliminate all possible chances of it being um, infected with pathogens. And uh problem with that is I don't believe such a strict standard um, is demanded of any other raw food, um, not even ones that we know to be frequently dangerous, but like raw oysters. So I'm inclined, I'm very much inclined to think that both the pro-raws and the anti-raws they act as if they were uh, determined to justify each other's worst accusations. Um, there are just so many uh, pro 
um, who won't uh, listen, even entertain the possibility um, that raw milk might be a vector of very ser- serious illness. Um, and I think that in a day of pathogens that are emerging, new ones that we didn't know about, uh, that are new to us because they were undiscovered before, uh, like Listeria monocytogenes, uh, like some strains of E. coli. Um, these things are coming to light more and more, and we ought to be more and more scared of them, uh, more mm. concerned with precautions. And I would like to see more acknowledgement of that fact uh, among pro-Raws, but you don't often hear it. The other side, um, the health authorities at the FDA, um, at many, um, well, virtually all the state and local public health agencies, their take um, is that we know what we're talking about. You shut up and listen. And that is not going to fly. Because the raw milk movement I think um, it's a true grassroots protest movement. And there is not a great history of grassroots protest movements being put down forever by people saying, you shut up and listen to me. All right. Just raise the ire of the <laughs> of the protesters, and it gets more active. Um, Applied you know, to politics for sure. <laughs> uh, what I would like to see is real discussions, conversations uh, between uh, the pro laws and the authorities, listening to each other with mutual respect, instead of going at each other's jugular veins. Hmm. That's true. It happens in so many, so many issues where um, laws seem to and, and politics get involved with with things. And now particularly, you know, food. What about some other things that we can I mean, discussions on raw milk, I think, would be uh, would be very important. And I, I agree with you. Uh, what other things concerning milk and milk production uh, may, might the future hold? Of course, we you know we know this GMOs and 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 um, hormones. We that you know they've sort of taken care of that. What what are some other things that can that are coming down the pipeline, so to speak, on the production of milk? Well, I think there, there are several trends in competition with each other, or anyhow, going on at the same time. And if you look at the history of milk production for the last few decades, it's been, well, you can sum it up in one word, which is gigantism, Uh, just Mm. bigger, 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 bigger. Um, There are mega dairy farms springing up all over the place with um, 8,000 cows to the operation, 25,000 cows, more than 40,000 cows to a single operation. Um, it's a way to consolidate. It's a way to uh, reduce production costs 
uh, per unit of milk harvested, um, and it has devastating environmental consequences. And I think that the future is going to have more and more and more of this um, to the point where local um, governments and um, citizens, activist organizations, um, will just be screaming at the top of their voice um, at what these outfits are doing to the local water and the local air. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not see anything stopping that trend in the near future, and uh, I certainly hope that the protesters are able to um, find an ear in state governments. So the other um, possibility that I see, I think there's some real um, pushbacks against that way of doing the milk business. Um, For one thing, and this has been noted by the raw milk proponents and um, it's starting to be noted, I think, by a lot more consumers. Um, the milk business, as it has developed, is, has been terrible for dairy cows, for their health. Um, they have been pressured, um, subject to more and more pressure to produce more milk per cow um, by... Uh, intensive breeding by certain kinds of feeding um, that are deleterious to their health uh, but make them give more milk. Um, And even at university dairy science departments, um, there's starting to be pushback, like why are we going down this crazy path? Uh, Let's step back and reconsider. So the reconsideration is taking uh, the form of some new crossbreeds of cows um, where you you take a high producer like Holsteins, um, you take a couple of uh, very um, little-known European breeds, um, you establish a triple rotation breeding program, and you end up with animals that are healthier um, than the hybrid Holsteins. Uh, they produce less milk, but the milk is of better quality and the animals live longer. Now, if this trend can really um, it can really expand into the future. I think we will all be better off for it. Um, also, um, a lot of farmers, and again, um, the raw milk movement was a big instigator here. There are a lot of farmers who were involved um, in the mainstream market milk production system who are saying, the hell with this, I can't make a living. Um, I cannot earn enough um, to earn back my production costs. Why don't I go into business for myself? So there are a lot of uh, refugees from the mainstream interest um, of the mainstream industry. Uh, There are a lot of people setting up direct farm-to-consumer 
dairy operations, which is an answer to prayer for a lot of consumers. And these are not just raw milk operations either. Um, around New York City, we can easily think of um, half a dozen, maybe eight or ten uh, little independent dairies um, that are producing milk tastes better. It is better uh, than what you find in the supermarket dairy case. Um, I also think the future is going to, I think the future is going to see a consumer rediscovery of fermented milk or milks, kinds of different kinds of fermented milk, um, because that was the original way, uh, the original method to remove or uh, reduce lactose uh, from milk. Um, and it should be tailor-made for a lot of people who want to avoid lactose. Uh, from, mm-hmm. um, it's going to be that trend um, is going to be strengthened um, in the next few decades uh, by increased immigration from parts of the world where there are remarkable local um, traditions of milk fermentation. Um, right. I mean, if, you know, just go back even 10, 15 years, you never saw um, so many products of kefir and, and um, drinking yogurts on the shelves. And now it's just there's a, a you know, a panoply of, of different products to choose from. Yeah. And that's a sign. That's a sign. And I think this yeah. is going to continue. It's going to expand. And um, you know how um, the culinary scene, the restaurant scene in New York City, has been transformed with the, the arrival of people from Nigeria. Just, just think about that one country and what it has contributed. Uh, well, in Nigeria and other African countries, there are many traditions of uh, milk fermentation. There are lots and lots of uh, fermented milk products that I think would have um, great appeal in this country. Right. We'll see. We'll hope for that. And, and you know, hope that the uh, industry is um, at large is sensitive to that as well. When you were writing this book as as compared to your first book on milk, um, which, you know, of course, included a lot of interesting recipes and a lot of them for the fermented milk uh, or making fermented products. Um, was there anything in your research about this book or that what or that drove you to research um, in the book that, that surprised you? Um, my research on this book, yeah, I mean, did you you knew what you were going for when you went in well, to start it to an extent, but I think one of the things that this this was not entirely new to me, but but I was amazed to realize how rapidly um, and how eagerly um, American high tech um, dairying pra- practices are being adopted in dozens of different countries all around the world, often at tremendous ecological cost. Um, 
I, I spoke earlier about the, the, the uh, rise of mega dairies in this country. So uh, ministries of agriculture from South America to Africa to India to China um, are being convinced by Western experts that these are models for progress. Um, we already know that the effect of U.S. mega dairies and on local water supplies can be really damaging. Well, think of the potential effects in a place like Saudi Arabia. Or um, think of um, think of the Chinese government uh, telling people that if kids drink enough milk, they can grow up to be as tall as Americans. So let's have mega dairies. Yes, if they can digest the lactose, right? Oh, well, the Chinese are trying to develop cows, uh, clone clone cows, uh, that can give milk without lactose. Hmm. Those free milk, think of that, it would kill a, it would kill an actual calf. Huh, yeah. Wow. Not good for yeah, not not good for the animal. Better for humans. That's I can see it now. Oh, <laughs> well, this a lot of interesting things to come out of this and think about, and and you know just thinking about how you know something. I guess you know anyone born into you know the nineteenth century, sort of it's, milk is something they take for granted, right and. And here it was basically a, you know, drinking milk, a relatively new substance, and how far we've come, and also now turned around and gone back. So, I hope you're right, and I hope that a lot of these um, these newer uh, techniques can can take hold and can help the environment, help the milk, and help people who are drinking it. It is really always a pleasure to talk to you, Anne. You just you're you certainly dive into a subject and don't leave any stone unturned. And I can't wait to see what's next, (laughs) but thank you. And thank you. It's, it's really been interesting uh, talking about milk, the myth of milk as superfood spoiled. Again, the book is spoiled. The myth of milk as superfood by Ann Mendelson. And thank you so much. And thank you for listening to another Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe 